Thank you, worship team. Wow. Do you know how um, sometimes, at least for me, sometimes it seems like God is whispering, just these faint whispers, kind of getting my attention slowly. But then there are other times, I was telling Smitty this, this morning in our prayer time this morning, sometimes it's like he takes a two-by-four and just goes, whoosh! And I am just, I was hit upside the head this week by this question, and the question is this, whose kingdom are you fighting for? Whose kingdom are you fighting for? As the people of Israel were making their way into the promised land, <laughs> there was one great obstacle that stood in their way, and it was this heavily fortified, wall-encased city known as Jericho. And you've probably heard this story, right? How the, the great walls came tumbling down. But do you remember the event that took place right before that? It, it, it's, um, it's not as, not as glorious, um, but it's significant. Joshua, the... the, um, the uh, the one who followed in Moses' footsteps, the leader of the free people of Israel, he's walking around. He's apparently either, either he's praying or he is just surveying the land, and, and he's walking near Jericho. He's checking it out. And all of a sudden, before him, there's, there's a figure. There's a man standing there before him. And, and knowing that Joshua was, was in enemy territory, Joshua says what anyone would would say, what anyone would ask this man, are you for us or are you for our adversaries? That's a familiar question, isn't it? A very familiar question. These days we're constantly evaluating whether or not people are for us or they are against us. We, we meet them at the coffee shop or at the gas station or out on the street or on social media. Or maybe they're, they're living right next door to us and we are wondering, are they for me? Or are they against me? We may not technically be at war, right? But in our increasingly polarized culture, it's hard to escape that feeling that there are enemies around every corner. People who would do us harm if they knew what we really thought or what we ascribe to, what we believe in. In confrontations, little battles are happening all over the place, right? They're happening on airplanes. They're happening on street corners. They're, uh, they're taking place at the supermarkets. They're taking place at, at gas stations, at, at schools. Some are fought with, with shouts and screams, some with fists, some with knives, some with guns, some with just pen and paper. This is past Tuesday. A major battle took place. A major battle took place, and the battle was decided as the people cast their vote in the California recall election. I'm sure you have some feelings about that. I do. Of course, we all know that at the core, there were, there were two sides. Either you're going to vote to recall or vote to not recall the governor. 
And throughout the past several, many, many months leading up to this election, we've been bombarded with all kinds of messages, right? We've seen it on the TV ads. We've heard it on the radio. For those of us who still listen to radio, we've gotten it. I don't know about you. I've been getting them text messages. I don't know how they found my number, but they found it. And I was getting like six, seven, eight texts a day and going out of my mind trying to, I'm up on Google. I'm trying to figure out how do I block these things? How do I get off this list? How do, there's no escape. We've been bombarded by flags, by bumper stickers, by people accosting us, people calling us up on the telephone. And we're called to pick a side. Called to pick a side called to stand up. Most importantly, get out there and vote, right? The important thing is get out there and vote. Why? Because a kingdom is at stake. A kingdom is at stake. The fate of California, the fate of our schools, the fate of our, of our streets, of our bank accounts, and most importantly, the one that the message has come through loud and clear recently, this, the, the fate of our health, the fate of your health, your family's health, your parents' health, your children's health, it is at stake. Joshua had a lot at stake. A lot at stake. The chief of a massive group of people, he is leading into hostile territory. You better believe his guard was up. Absolutely. So when he encounters this man near Jericho, of course he asks the question, are you for us or are you for them over there? Are you on their side? Because I need to know whether or not to reach for my sword here. And that's when the most profound thing the man responds by simply saying, no. <laughs> no. <laughs> Did you not understand the question? It was an either-or question, not a yes or no question. Are you for us or are you against us? No. No. I'm not for you. I'm not for them. I'm not for your kingdom. I'm not for their kingdom. I'm not for your agenda. I'm not for their agenda. It says this in verse 14. No. But I'm the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And in an instant, Joshua was reminded that this whole thing that he was doing about leading the children of Israel into the promised land, his great purpose, his existence, it wasn't about his agenda or his cause or his kingdom it was about God's kingdom, wasn't it? At various points in our study of Mark, we've examined the motives of those around Jesus, and we've seen some of the kingdoms that they have pledged allegiance to, right? We've seen the religious leaders, and we've seen evidence that they were motivated by power and by prestige and by personal gain. Recently, we looked at Judas, We've looked at Judas, and we have had suspicion, and that suspicion was confirmed that Judas was motivated by money. We, we saw from an account in the Gospels that he had been pilfering the, 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 the treasury of the disciples and, and Jesus. He'd been pilfering money this whole time, unbeknownst to the disciples. Did he steal out of greed, or was it because he had debts he had to pay off? We don't know. 
We've wondered if maybe he signed up to, to be on Jesus' team because he thought, well, Jesus, is, this is going to be the winning team. And if Jesus truly is the Messiah, well, then he's going to be the one that's going to lead his people to victory. And he's going to establish this unending, eternal, authoritative superpower. And we get to be a part of that. Maybe that was Judas' motivation. And we recognize that in, in people in our day, they have all sorts of, of motives, don't they? All sorts of motives for, for doing the various things that they do, including studying up on Jesus, claiming allegiance to Jesus, following Jesus. Some are looking for health, wealth, and happiness. Some are, are hoping to attain some, some type of secret hidden knowledge out there so that they can prove themselves more informed or more intelligent than the ignorant masses. <laughs> some are musicians. This is not an uncommon thing, right? Musicians, they, they start out in the Christian community and they, they reach a certain level of popularity and then they declare, ah, yeah, I never really believed in that stuff. And they go secular and now they can make the big bucks, right? Some follow Jesus just to fulfill their social desires. Fulfill their social desires. They, they feel good about being a part of a church and, and coming to church. There's something good about that. But they also like the community that comes with it. They also like that sense of belonging that comes with it. Some use Christ's name just to justify whatever their, their pet cause is. And so they claim to be in line with Jesus, even though they know very little about what Jesus, who Jesus was or what he said or what he taught. And yet, if you rise up or if you say anything or you don't affirm what it is that they believe, well, then they're going to say, you are so unchristlike. Now, people will either resist Jesus or they will hold on to Jesus to advance their own agenda and build whatever kingdom it is that they have allegiance to. But Christ came not to enhance or fortify our kingdoms, but that we might be brought into God's glorious, unshakable, eternal kingdom. Is it possible that in, effort, in an effort to push for whatever it is that we believe is true and good, maybe, maybe to make this world a better place, a safer place, or, or even maybe a more, what we think is more a God-aligned place, is it possible that we have forgotten or at least lost sight of, that first and foremost, we need to be all about his kingdom. And not only about his kingdom, but in his way. We know from our study of God's word that God is moving throughout history moving throughout history. He's not on vacation. He's not taking a nap. He's not busy on his computer trying to figure out how to order takeout. No, he is actively unfolding his eternal plan in time and space. Through Jesus Christ, he's made a way for fallen humanity to be forgiven, to be restored to himself. He's called out of darkness a people for his own possession, right? Why? 1 Peter 2.9 tells us. 
1 Peter 2.9 tells those who trust in Jesus, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. What for? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Jesus told us in Matthew 6.33, seek first the kingdom of God. This is the kingdom that we, you and I, if you place your trust in Jesus, you have been brought into. It's his kingdom that we have been made citizens of, and it's his kingdom that we are to be all about. What is our role in his kingdom? How do we promote this kingdom? How do we seek this kingdom? By proclaiming the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. By proclaiming the good news to the world. That's what we're called to do. By going into all the world and making disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything that I have commanded you by, by being witnesses, right? In Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and to where? The uttermost parts of the earth. By asking ourselves, I think, whose kingdom are we fighting for? And coming back to what God's kingdom is all about. Just before Jesus went to the cross, he shared a meal with his disciples in which he gave them a lasting way to remember how they entered in to this kingdom and what their number one role is as members of that kingdom. Let's take a look at Matthew, or not Matthew, Mark chapter 14 together. Mark chapter 14, and we are looking at verses 12 to 26 today. Would you stand with me as we read from God's Word? Mark chapter 14, verses 12 to 26, and it says this, And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they had sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, The teacher says, Where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready. There prepare for us. And the disciples set out, and they went to the city and found it, just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. Verse 17, and when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. And they began to be sorrowful and to say to him, one after the other, is it I? He said to them, it is one of the twelve who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For, when the, for the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Verse 25, and as they were eating, he took bread and after blessing it, broke it, gave it to them, and said, Take, this is my body. 
And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly, I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. Let's unpack this here quickly. In verses 12 to 16, Jesus sends out two of his disciples to go get a place ready and to be preparing for he and his disciples to celebrate the Passover together, to eat the Passover meal together. Now, he doesn't exactly tell them the name. He doesn't tell them the name of the person or the house to go to. He gives them clues, right? Go into the city. You're going to find a man with a jar and then tell him, you know, tell this to the master of your house. It's kind of vague. It's kind of cryptic. It's mysterious. What's going on here? But maybe be that Jesus didn't want the rest of his disciples to know exactly where they were going to have the Passover meal. Specifically, it's very possible he didn't want Judas to know. Because let's think about it. If Judas knew where they were going to eat the Passover meal, well, this is going to be the perfect opportunity to call the authorities, have them come and arrest them. Jesus is reclining at a table. They're all in one room. We can take them all. Take care of this very nicely, very easily, in a closed environment. But Jesus didn't want that to happen. In fact, in Luke twenty-two fifteen, Jesus tells his disciples that he had been longing, longing to share this Passover meal with them. Have you ever longed for a meal? I've longed for meals for various reasons, mainly because I'm starving, but... Jesus longed for this meal because this meal was crucial. It was of utmost importance. This was the point where he would open their eyes to the reality that the Passover that they were celebrating, the Passover, you remember the Passover, that deliverance from that last plague in Egypt where the angel of death would come down and strike every firstborn in Egypt. The event where the, the people of God, they were called to sacrifice a lamb and take his blood and smear it over the doorposts of their home. And then anyone who would enter into that home, the angel of death would pass over them and they would be safe and secure. It all pointed to the reality that that foreshadowed and pointed to what Jesus was about to do on the cross. It's all looking forward to it. And during this meal, Jesus was going to transform the Passover meal into something of far greater significance. Instead of being about lambs that were killed in Egypt, this meal was going to be about the lamb, the final lamb, the ultimate lamb whose blood and body would be sacrificed as a once and for all payment for sin. (laughs) This meal was going to be all about God's way of bringing people into his kingdom, bringing them to himself. Of course, everything Jesus told those two disciples to do, it it, it all came to be just as he said it was. Mark 14, 16, we just read it. The disciples set out, went to the city, found it just as he had told them, and prepared the Passover. And then verse 17, when it was evening, he came with the twelve, and they were reclining at table and eating. Jesus says something that is not really 
the, the, the proper thing to say at the beginning of a, a dinner party. Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. That word betray, it, it means to give over, to hand over. Even among those closest to Jesus was someone who was going to take Jesus and hand him over to the, the enemy, to the religious leaders for, for what? For, for temporal, personal gain? That's what, it se- that's what it looks like. It's easy for us to look at Judas and to go, how could you? You walked with him. You talked with him. You saw the miraculous things that he did. Proof positive that he is who he said he was. How could you trade him for anything? Who would do this? The disciples didn't know it was Judas. They were asking themselves, is it me? Is it me? And one after the other, they asked Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Is it I? I hope it's not me. Is it him? I think it's him. It's not me, right? Is it me? They began to ponder sorrowfully and say to him, one after the other, is it I? That's not a bad question to ask, is it? Is it I? Not a bad question to ask. As awful as the thought is of losing sight of of Jesus, the beauty of Jesus, and thinking about, actually thinking about trading him for anything else, I think it's important that we regularly take inventory, have a reality check, and ask ourselves, is it I? Is it me? Whose kingdom am I fighting for? Have I lost sight of who Jesus is, what he came to accomplish, and what his kingdom is all about? Do I I think that I am beyond falling away? Have I forgotten where I came from and who I was before Christ saved me? You know, I'll bet you're, you're like me. In this past year, you've come across so many different people, so many Christians, in fact, who have been unwaveringly confident in their interpretation, in their view, in their assessment uh, of, of anything and everything, of what's going on in the world, of what they hear on the news, of what's happening in politics, what's happening in healthcare, what's happening in national security, whatever it is, and they're confident that they are absolutely right and they are passionate about it. And every time I encounter this, I'm thinking, Are are you really that sure? Can I be really that sure? Because last time I checked, the only one in all of the universe that is absolutely right all of the time is God. The disciples are asking, is it I? That's a question that I've had to ask myself this past year or so over and over and over again, because I know that deep down inside, there is a battle going on inside of me. It's a battle, it's a war between those old fallen desires that still exist somewhere deep down inside of this thing. It's against that 
and the, what the, the work that the Holy Spirit is doing inside of me in leading me toward righteousness. I want to seek first God's kingdom. I will say that. I will confess that to you. And when I'm here on Sunday mornings in this room, most of the time, that is my desire. I have fleeting moments where it's not, and I go, whoa, what's going on here? But so very often I fool myself into thinking that I am pursuing God's kingdom when all I'm really doing is fighting for my own kingdom. I call it his kingdom, but it's nothing like his kingdom. It's not what his kingdom is about. Verse 20, he said to them, It's one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into this dish with me, for the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to the man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. It's no small thing to hand over God's anointed, is it? No small thing. Even though Jesus going to the cross was all part of God's eternal plan, it was going exactly according to plan. Jesus says it right here, for the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. And yet, the betrayer would still be held responsible for his actions, and that meant facing the judgment of God. And you know, the same is true for anyone who on that last day finds themselves outside of God's kingdom. It doesn't matter. <laughs> how moral that person thinks that they are, how right that they think that they are. It doesn't matter how many good things that they have done, how many accolades or trophies that they have received, what kind of difference they think they have made in the world. It doesn't matter if they haven't crossed over into God's kingdom through that bridge that is the cross of Christ, then they're still in their sins. And I think just like for Judas, it's safe to say that it would have been better for them if they had not been born than to fall into the hands of a righteous God. Better if they did not exist at all than to face the eternal fury of God's judgment. Whose kingdom are you in? Those in this room and those who are watching online, we know you're out there. Whose kingdom are you in? On the night of the first Passover, God's judgment descended upon Pharaoh and all the people in the land. Every firstborn in the land died destined to die. That only escape, as we've already mentioned, was to have the blood of that lamb smeared on the doorpost. And anyone who stepped through one of those doors, the doors of, of those who identified themselves as God's people by the mark of the lamb's blood, then they were the ones that were saved. During the Last Supper, Jesus made it clear that to be in his kingdom was to have his upcoming, then upcoming sacrifice applied to your life. The only way to escape eternal punishment was to have what he was about to do applied to your life. The innocent blood of the Lamb of God applied to your life. That's how we escape judgment, isn't it? 
that's how we are adopted into the family of God. That's how we become his people. That's how we enter into his kingdom. And that's what we remember every single time we take the bread and we take the, the little cup of juice to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. Verse 22. As they were, they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, he broke it, gave it to them, and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. The bread that had once been symbolic of Israel's quick getaway, their quick deliverance from 400 years of slavery in Egypt came to symbolize Christ's body that was sacrificed to make atonement, to make payment for their sin. For those who would believe in him. The wine, it represented Israel's redemption. Israel's redemption from slavery in Egypt. Now it would be a symbol of Christ's shed blood that would be our redemption from sin. And notice that all of this is about the way that Jesus made for us to be brought into the kingdom of God. By faith in him, we're brought into God's kingdom. We've been brought into the realm that he rules. We now belong to his kingdom, which is about his purposes and what he wants to accomplish. You and I have a lot of things that we'd like to accomplish, don't we? I have a lot of things that I would like to accomplish. You come over to my house and you will, I will tell you, I have a mental list of all the things that I want to do around my place. There are many. But when we remind ourselves that Christ's body and his blood have brought us out of darkness and into his marvelous light, out of temporal, turbulent this troublesome kingdom that we find ourselves in, and into God's glorious kingdom, we need to remember that it is His rule, His rule that we should be seeking. How do we do that? By proclaiming the excellencies of Him who called us out of darkness and into His marvelous light. That's what God cares about. Do you remember John 3.16? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but in order that the world might be saved through him. This is an amazing thing to me. For some reason, we Christians have oftentimes gotten it into our heads that our mission in life 
is to condemn the world around us. It's like it's some secret hidden thing that no one knows about, that the world is corrupt, that the world is messed up, that, that our, our country is going to hell in a handbasket, that all, everything is falling apart and decay is happening all around us. But we have to let everyone know about it. We, did you see this? Did you see this? How can you believe that there's any hope for us? How can you, how can you support these people over here? How can you support these people over here? How can you not, not just get riled up and start shouting and posting things and declaring condemnation on the world? How can we not do this? My friends, if God desires that the world be saved through the gift, the most precious gift of his son, Jesus Christ, then how can we get caught up in anything else than finding ways, any way and every way, to tell people about him? That's what they need. Not a slap in the face. They need to know about him. They need to know about the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous I heard a Christian leader ask just the other day, we, we, me and some of the staff were at a gathering of, of Christian pastors and leaders, and, and the guy speaking, uh, he said he, he's been asking people this, this question, are you more interested in republicanizing or evangelizing? And he, he would say, show me your Facebook or your Instagram account. And I will tell you. We could change out that word republicanizing, if it's even a word, for, for anything, right? Are you more interested in this or that or the other thing? Or are you interested in what Jesus Christ and God the Father has called you to? The sacred task of making his great name known started with 12, whittled down to 11, and then it rocked the world. We are a small group of people. I don't know how many we have listening online. I don't really check those numbers. We are a small group of people. But we are people who have brought, been brought into God's kingdom and given that sacred task. Whose kingdom are you fighting for? If you were in Christ, if you placed your trust in his body and his blood that has been applied to your life, then you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim his excellencies. When Joshua realized who was standing in front of him, we read, he fell on his face to the earth and worshiped and said to him, what does my Lord say to his servant? 
what is our response when we are reminded that we have been brought into God's kingdom? What is our response every time we take the bread and the wine? Are we drawn to worship? Are we asking, God, what is it that you would have your servant do? What is your word calling me to? We're living in a time where it is becoming increasingly easy (laughs) to get riled, to get angry, to become aggressive, and even passionately, sometimes violently, forcefully, try to make things that we believe in happen. Let's not lose sight of the fact that this is not our kingdom. It is God's kingdom that we have been invited into. Let's regularly take long, hard looks into the mirror that is the word of God. Let's ask ourselves if we are still about the things that God is about. Let's daily fall on our faces, daily fall on our faces and worship. Not a moment goes by when we are outside of his presence. And as we do, let's be continually coming back to his word and asking what he requires of his servants. Not our will, but yours, O Lord, be done. Not my kingdom, but your kingdom come. Father, we humbly, humbly approach your throne as people who do not deserve to do so. Were it not for Christ, we would be condemned. Were it not for Christ, It would be better if we had not been born at all. And yet here we are. Not of our own doing, but because of what Jesus Christ did. You've called us to yourself. You've called us into your kingdom, Lord. And Lord, we we are people who are easily excited. And our anger is quickly kindled But Lord, may we continually be checking ourselves and may we be coming back to your word and may we be asking you, what is it that you want of your servants? Lord, we know one thing that you have made loud and clear is that we are to be people who proclaim. Proclaim your excellencies. Proclaim the wonder and awesomeness of Jesus Christ, to be proclaiming hope to a world that is so desperately in need of hope and finding so very little. Lord, call us back to yourself. Use us for your glory. We know, Lord, that there are people that come onto this campus who don't know you. They'll be here tomorrow. May we point to the light of Jesus Christ. 
We know that as we are in our communities, when we go to the hardware store, or we're at the grocery store, or at school, wherever we may be, there are people desperately in need of you. May our lives, may our actions, may our words, may our attitudes, may they point those who don't know you to the awesomeness of our Savior. We love you. Thank you for this time we've had in your word. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.